Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Sela Podcast. My name is Charlie, and today we're going to be continuing uh, in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So let me pray, and then I'll read that for us, and we'll dive in. Father, I just uh, ask you to meet us wherever we're at right now, God. I ask you to fill each one of us with your spirit, that anyone who might be listening to this, God, that you would uh, encourage them, that you would challenge them, that you would open up their minds and their hearts to hear what you have to say to them, and that you would transform us from the inside out so that we could live and look and think and act more like your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here we are, we're turning the corner in our journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, and a quick refresher, if you've been with us over the last six months, you, you may know that the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, is what, what this sermon is all about. Matthew 5-7 through 7 is Jesus' most complete recorded teaching on the kingdom of God. It's sort of his manifesto on what he thinks about himself and what he came to do. And the most notable thing is that as Jesus talks about this kingdom, he doesn't talk about it as some future otherworldly spiritual reality. Instead, he talks about it as a present earthly reality that he came to bring. I came to bring heaven to earth and this is what it looks like. That's what we should be thinking as we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like when the kingdom breaks into our lives? What does it look like when heaven collides with earth? Well, look no further than Matthew 5 through 7. That's what it's all about. So we spent almost half a year going through verse by verse the first section of the sermon. This is known as the Beatitudes or the Blessings. And we learned right from the start that Jesus' kingdom is not like every other kingdom. It's not a kingdom that prioritizes the wealthy and the influential and the powerful. Instead, Jesus offers his kingdom to all the wrong people, people with no measurable value or worth, the social and spiritual zeros, the weak and the oppressed, the pushed out and the left out. Jesus says to these people, my kingdom is for you. Thank you. 
So Jesus begins this kingdom manifesto by painting a picture of the type of people or the community that would make up his kingdom as well as advance it throughout the world. He's not just saying the kingdom is for you, but you are the ones that are going to take the kingdom into the rest of the world. And in the eyes of the world, and particularly the religious, it's all the wrong people that Jesus is offering this to and inviting into this. Two gatherings ago, um, it would be our last podcast, Aaron gave us some great insight into Matthew um, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, which is the passage right before this. Um, and and in, in this passage, Jesus sums up his series of blessings, the Beatitudes. And he says that this kingdom community that he is building is like the salt of the earth. It's like the light of the world. And he's saying to them that even though uh, you may be small, even though you might be weak, even though you might be insignificant by the world's standards, your presence in this world actually has the power to transform it just like a pinch of salt can change an entire meal. And the smallest flicker of a candle can light up the darkest of rooms. And we read this and and, and we're left with this inescapable question. Does our community have that sort of impact? Does the church today have that sort of transforming presence in the world? Like, like, like salt has on a meal or a candle has in a room. In The Spirit of the Disciplines, uh, it's a book by Dallas Willard. He writes, if more, of a, more than a quarter of the U.S. population professes to be following Jesus, where is this effect that Jesus speaks of? A pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. If we can read this first portion of the Sermon on the Mount without being deeply convicted in our own lives and in our own community about our impact or or lack of impact on the world around us, then, then we are blind. We are deaf to what Jesus is saying. This is hugely convicting. The good news is that Uh, for the people listening to this sermon that Jesus is giving almost 2,000 years ago, they were facing a very similar question. How could a community like the one Jesus describes possibly have any effect on the world around them? How could this kingdom community described in the Beatitudes ever hope to change the world? It doesn't make sense. Well, Jesus is going to begin to address this question, and throughout the rest of the sermon, Jesus is going to give us a picture of what it looks like to live into this kingdom reality here on earth. What happens when the kingdom breaks into the lives and the communities of those who follow Jesus? Well, this is, this is what Jesus is going to address. This is what it looks like, and it's totally countercultural, not only in Jesus' time, but in the world that we live in today. So a warning, if, if you're on this journey with us and, and over the next six months or so, if you're going to really take these next two and a half chapters seriously, it's going to radically change the way you live. It's going to transform 
the way you think. It's going to transform the way you see the world and, and the way you see your neighbors and and in just your everyday life, your rhythms, your habits. I mean, it, it's going to be transformative. It can't not be if we're going to take it seriously because that's Jesus's intention. What does it look like when heaven collides with earth in our lives? Matthew 5 through 7 has the answer. So here we go. We're going to dive in. This, this passage kind of gives us a little bit of a introduction to what Jesus is going to talk about in the next two chapters. Um, so if you're ready, uh, let's, let's take a look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So, so verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. What is Jesus talking about when he says law and prophets? Well, the Hebrew word that we have translated as law is Torah. Torah is T-O-R-A-H spelled out in, in English. And the Torah refers to the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For the Hebrew people, this wasn't the Old Testament. It was the Torah, and it was the core of their scriptures. The Torah to tells the origin story of the Israelite people. The Torah is where they look to learn how to live as the people of God. We often see Torah in our Bibles translated as law, which certainly captures one aspect of what the Torah is, but it, it, a better translation would probably be teaching or the instruction. Because Torah, it's not a legal document in the same sense as our Constitution is a legal document, nor is it like the other ancient legal codes of that time. Now, if you've read the, uh, the Old Testament, particularly the first five chapters, you probably noticed the Torah does have a lot of commands or what could be called laws. And, and there's no question about that. There's certainly a lot. Um, if you may have a guess as to how many there are, we, we know uh, of the first 10, the 10 commandments, those are real popular, but in total, there are 613 commands in the Torah. Yeah, there's a lot of commands. And the, the Pharisees, we have to understand, like they memorized every single one of these 613 commands and they followed every single one of them. They did a really good job following the law uh, or the commands of the Torah. But despite all these commands, the Torah is actually mostly narrative. Stories woven together to tell the larger story of God's relationship with his people and with the world. Now, the 613 commands are inseparable from these stories. They play a role in moving the story forward. But the Torah is so much more than a list of, of rules um, or, or commands. It's, it's, not, it's not just this legal document. It's, it's, it's primarily um, story. And so when we see law, and, and it's referring to the Old Testament, we should be thinking the Torah, the story of the people of Israel and God's relationship with the world through the people of Israel. So the law and the prophets, when Jesus says prophets, he's talking about the rest of the Old Testament, which includes the prophetic writings uh, such as Jeremiah and Isaiah, but it also refers to the historical books like Kings and Chronicles and the poetic writings like Psalms and Proverbs. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, and this isn't the only time he says this, uh, it's sort of a catch-all phrase, and it refers to what we would call the Old Testament, or what the Hebrew people would call the scriptures. 
It's like the equivalent to what we mean today when we say the Bible. So Jesus is saying, I haven't come to get rid of the scriptures. Now, why would Jesus have to say that? If you remember a couple gatherings ago, um, when Aaron was talking about the salt and light passage, he gave a great illustration that really captures, I think, what Jesus is asking his followers to do. Aaron mentioned how in some countries, most notably the UK, uh, people drive on the left side of the road. We here in America drive on the right side of the road. They drive on the left side of the road. And if you've ever visited a country that does this, it's very disorienting to switch to driving on the left side of the road, especially if you've, you've always driven on the right side. Everything is backwards. Everything that you, you just know intuitively, you have to really think twice about. Or am I making the right turn? Am I looking the right direction to, to avoid oncoming traffic? Um, it's disorienting. It's, it's backwards. And, and so the type of community that Jesus is proposing is so countercultural that it's sort of like switching to the left side of the road. But to make things even more challenging, Jesus isn't asking us to move to another country where everyone does things this way. He's not saying go to the UK and drive on the left side of the road. Um, he's, he's asking us to do it right here where we live now. It would be like all deciding um, that we're all going to go start driving on the left side of the road right here in Knoxville. Maybe you're driving on the road now and, and you think, all right, I'm, I'm going to switch over to the left side. Well, no one else is doing it, but we're doing it. So what if we did that, what would inevitably happen? A car crash, right? A collision. Jesus is setting up a community of people that are uh, living in a way that is so countercultural that it will inevitably collide with the world around them, the world that they exist within. And, and right here, Jesus is preempting one of the biggest collisions that he sees coming. And that is between him and his teachings about the kingdom uh, with the understanding that the Jewish people had, particularly the religious leaders, about God and his kingdom. And that understanding that they have is, is something that they've derived from their scriptures. So Jesus has to address this. There's, there's a conflict here between him and what they believe and think about God's word. So why does Jesus say, I have not come to abolish the scriptures? Because that is exactly what everyone thought he was doing. The things that he said and the way that he and his followers lived led people to the assumption that he did want to do away with the scriptures. Jesus makes sure to correct that assumption. Now, imagine that I had said something that led you all to believe that I wanted to do away with the Bible, or at least parts of the Bible. You, you'd probably um, and justifiably have some concerns, and, and I would want to correct that. So, I would sit here and I would say, listen, I don't, I don't want to do away with the Bible. It's a misunderstanding. I, I think the Bible is good. I think it is authoritative. I, I don't think we should get rid of it. I think we should. The natural thing to follow that would be obey it, right? I mean, if, if I don't want to get rid of the Bible, if I don't think we should do away with it, I think we should obey the Bible. We should follow the Bible. So for all the religious conservatives of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they hear Jesus say, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. And they let out this sigh of relief and they say, phew, okay, great. He's going to set the record straight. It's all a big misunderstanding. Now he's going to tell all these people uh, that they should obey the scriptures. 
He, that's his intention, to obey the scriptures. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. This is not the clarification that the Pharisees were hoping for. Fulfill the scriptures. What in the world does he mean by that? Understand that this is an unbelievable claim, and this is not what teachers of the law do. They obey the scriptures. They teach others to do the same. They don't fulfill them. And this is an important thing for us to really think about, because we can understand, uh, uh, most likely, how Jesus fulfills prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. When the prophet Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 61 says that the Messiah will come, we understand that to mean Jesus is the Messiah who will come. He fulfills the prophecies, but what does it mean when he says that he fulfills the entirety of the scriptures, all the law and the prophets? How does he fulfill the Ten Commandments? How does he fulfill the historical narratives of the Jewish people? How does he fulfill the Psalms, poems that don't seem to have anything to do with him? You see, Jesus is making a bigger claim here than saying he is the fulfillment of some prophecies. He is saying, I have come as the fulfillment, the culmination of the entire scriptures. What could that mean? Well, let's move on uh, to verse 18. Jesus is going to address um, what he thinks about specifically the commands of the Torah. And, and this is because for the Pharisees, um, this is really where the tension lies. To them, it seems like Jesus is playing fast and loose with some of these commands. And, and they're doing everything they can. They, on the other hand, are doing everything they can to follow every single one of the 613 commands. So verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Hold on a second, Jesus. Don't you ignore some of the commands in the scriptures? Don't your followers ignore the commands of the Torah? Remember, one big issue for the religious leaders here. Um, one of the things they have issue with with Jesus is that he spends a lot of his time or most of his time with the worst of sinners, tax collectors. They weren't observing the Torah. Prostitutes weren't following the commands. I mean, let's just run through some of some of the commands here and, and try to imagine why why would the Pharisees have an issue with with Jesus and the way that he was living and teaching? So the fourth command, uh, given to Moses in the book of Exodus is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, Jesus is accused multiple times throughout the Gospels of breaking Sabbath. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother. Well, Jesus says in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. Command number six says, don't murder. Well, Jesus picks a zealot. And, and if you were with us a number of gatherings ago, uh, you learned that zealots were known for assassinating their political enemies. 
that he chooses a zealot to be in his inner circle. Number seven says, don't commit adultery. Jesus has um, at least one prostitute with him almost everywhere he goes. Number eight says, don't steal. Jesus picks a tax collector who lives lavishly off empire-sanctioned thievery. That's what tax collectors were. They were thieves. And we have another 605 commands to go, and I think it's pretty clear already why people thought Jesus wasn't all that committed to keeping Torah. But right here in our passage, we have him saying that not one letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will be removed from the Torah. On top of that, anyone who sets aside the smallest, most trivial command will be called least in the kingdom. Okay, Jesus, we're going to need some clarification here. I mean, what what are you saying? Well, verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Just think for a moment for, of, of the Matthew 5 people, okay, the blessed ones in the kingdom, the people listed in the Beatitudes, the spiritually impoverished, the mournful, the meek, the oppressed, and so on. For them, a call to righteousness, which um, was defined as obedience to the law by the religious leaders, that was the very thing that put them in their place of pain and suffering. It was the very thing that was used to oppress them. Dallas Willard, uh, quoting him again, um, he says, The law and the prophets had been used to oppress through religious and social order, putting the glittering humans, the rich, the educated, the well-born, the popular, and the powerful, and so on, in possession of God. Well, Jesus' Beatitudes flips this on its head. It dumps the privilege out of their position of power and raises ordinary people with no human qualification into relationship with God through Jesus. Well, now it sounds like Jesus is placing that same burden back on his people, the people who couldn't measure up to the Pharisee's standard of righteousness. Now your righteousness must exceed that righteousness of the Pharisees. What are we supposed to make of this? Well, we have to ask, what does Jesus mean when he says righteousness? For the Pharisees, righteousness had become an outward adherence to the 613 commands of the Torah. Jesus takes a much more holistic view of righteousness, one that is based in the Hebrew scriptures. So in, in Hebrew, the word for righteous uh, righteousness is not a legalistic word, okay? and, it, and it addresses much more than our own personal obedience. Righteousness rever- refers to uh, rightness of our inner selves. Okay? So it doesn't just deal with our actions, but it deals with our heart and our motivations. It refers to rightness with, within a community or a society. Our interpersonal relationships, as well as justice and equality, actually the word uh, in Hebrew for righteousness is also translated as justice in some parts of the Bible. Righteousness refers to rightness with with God. So the pursuit of righteousness uh, could be summed up by saying it's, it's the restoration of all things. We talked about Um, When we were talking about, I think, the seventh beatitude, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We talked about this. It's that that means blessed are those who burn with desire for things to be made right. Righteousness is uh, is about desiring things or being a part of making things the way they ought to be, the way God intended for them to be. So to be righteous or to be righteous in the way that Jesus means it is about our participation in God's work of making things right in the world and in our lives. One of the main issues that Jesus has with the Pharisees is that there, there is a disconnect between their actions, which, which is obedience to the law, and their hearts. In Matthew 23, Jesus really unleashes on the Pharisees and he, he says to them, You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is not what Jesus wants for his people. Jesus' kingdom is not about blind obedience to a list of rules. It is about a cultivation of a heart that reflects God's heart cultivation of a heart that reflects God's heart. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And that's what these, these, next, uh, these next couple chapters are, are all about. So, so here's what we need to understand about this passage and where we're going to be going for the next few months. As Jesus looks at the scriptures, the Torah and the prophets, and, and every command uh, of the 613 commands listed in the Torah, He looks at them and and like the Pharisees, Jesus believes that they are good, that they are authoritative, that they shouldn't be thrown out or done away with. But the way that Jesus reads the scriptures, including the commands, is very different than the way the religious read them. The religious focus on their own outward obedience to every single law listed in the Torah. To them, that is God's primary will, that he that his people would obey the law to a T and that they would avoid being corrupted by those who don't follow the law. Jesus, um, on the other hand, reads the scriptures very differently. He sees the scriptures as a grand story of God's deep and unconditional love for the world. He reads the scriptures and sees that no matter how much the people fail to love God, no, how, no matter how much they turn away from him, no matter how much they disobey him, he never stops pursuing them, showing them grace and mercy and kindness. Jesus reads the scriptures and he sees how each law or command reveals an aspect of God's heart as expressed in a particular time, place, and community. Jesus understands that these laws are not the end-all, be-all of his will and his work in the world, but they are a way to form the hearts and the minds of Israel so that they would reflect his own. And most importantly, Jesus reads, 
all the scriptures uh, as pointed to and finding their fulfillment in him. He is the ultimate revelation of God's heart and desire. He is the word made flesh, scriptures embodied in a person. Jesus is what it looks like when someone allows their hearts to be shaped by God. And his desire for his people, this kingdom community that he is building, is not first and foremost obedience to the law, but ultimately it is a heart that reflects his own which was the intention of the law in the first place. If we, if we look back at Jeremiah 31, um, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, this is, uh, Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of the exile when, when really it looks like the Israel people are done for, um, that, that the game is over, they're, they're exiled in a foreign nation and um, they're not following the Torah and they look, it looks like they've broken um, the, their covenant relationship with God, and he's he's uh, s- seems to have given up on them. But Jeremiah says otherwise, and he says, "The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt." That's the Torah he's talking about. They broke that covenant, even though I loved them as a husband loves his wife. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my law or I'll put my Torah on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors nor say to one another, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will forget their sins. That's God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. This is what Jesus is doing. That he is creating this Jeremiah 31 people who are not so much focused on the law as they are the heart and the intention behind the law which Jesus says in Matthew 22 is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says that all the Torah and the prophets, every bit of scripture depends on these two commands. Love God with everything you are and everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul echoes this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, if you love your neighbor, you will, you will fulfill all the requirements of God's law. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill all the requirements, all the 613 commands, you will fulfill them. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and all other commands are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So, Jesus is going to play this out for us as we move forward in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to give us Uh, real practical pictures of what it looks like to live this way. 
And he's going to uncover the heart that is often behind our actions. And, and as we move through this, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be convicting. No one's going to go through this and say, yeah, I pretty much got this already. It's, it, is, it will at times be frustrating as Jesus pokes at and, and prods at and uncovers the things we'd rather not have uncovered. But we must remember that through all of it, as Jesus is doing heart surgery on us, as he is calling us to have hearts of unconditional grace and love for others, he has that same heart for us. He has unconditional love and abundant grace for us. So when we fail, his love never fails. And we have to remember that as we move through this journey. But if we take seriously his call to kingdom living here on earth, it's going to require some heart surgery. We can't just sit back and say, well, Jesus loves me. We got like, if we want to live into the kingdom that he is building here on this earth, it's going to require a renovation of the heart. It's going to require Jesus to tear some things out. He's going to mess with some things that we'd rather him not mess with. He's going to reveal some stuff in our hearts that we'd rather just ignore. But I promise you that there will be nothing better for you than, than to allow him to do it. So, so this is what I would encourage you to do in, in closing. I, I would encourage you to invite Jesus to, to begin heart surgery on you. I would encourage you to pray that he reveals in you the, the things deep in your heart that he wants to address, the things that need healing, the things that need to be challenged, the things that keep you from loving God and loving others. This is not about outward obedience. It is about an inward transformation that will make us into the people, into the community that Jesus invites us to be. A community that is salt in the earth and a light in the world, a community that is characterized by the radical, sacrificial, unceasing love of God that will transform the world around us. So if you can take five minutes, we, we in our gathering on Sunday, we, we did table discussions and we just answered the question, what do you think initially here that, that Jesus wants to do in your heart? I encourage you to think through that, maybe journal it, maybe share it with someone, maybe just pray. Um, but what, what, what is God putting on your heart right now? What, what do you think he wants to do in your heart? Um, and, uh, and I invite you to go on this journey with us. Have a good day.